We're in our message series on the life of Jesus. We're going through his whole life in chronological order, in the order that the events happened. And his life is documented in four books that are found in the Bible. These four books are called the four gospels. And today we're gonna be in the Gospel of John, chapter 16 of the Gospel of John. And the question really is, if you knew that you were going to die tomorrow, what would you tell the people you care about in your life? What would you want them to know? That's the question that Jesus was confronted with in the text that we're studying today. We're reading through a whole long conversation that he has with his disciples that's known as the Upper Room Discourse because most of it took place in a room above a house, an upper room, on the night before Jesus would be crucified at the Last Supper. They've left the Last Supper. They're now walking down one side of the valley in Jerusalem across the Kidron uh, River in the bottom and then up on the other side toward the Garden of Gethsemane. And so Jesus is continuing to share things that he believes they really, really need to know. Last week, Jesus shared something really difficult for us to study today. It was a difficult text. It was a reminder that the world right now is being ruled by Satan and we belong to Jesus. And so even though we might make it our business and our goal to love one another, a lot of the time the world is going to hate Christians for the simple reason that the world for the most part is under the control of Satan and we are under the power and control and ownership of Jesus. And so there's a problem there. That was a difficult message to study, but he ended up encouraging the disciples once again with the good news that there's a reason for hope. There is a reason for optimism. The Holy Spirit is gonna be present in every believer and he's gonna give them the power to actually follow Jesus even in the face of very difficult persecutions. Now this week that conversation continues and Jesus keeps talking about reasons the disciples have for hope. Reasons that they have to believe that things are gonna be okay even when they're staring down death. And my prayer is that this study will remind all of us of some foundational basic truths that we're all far too quick to forget. But if we'll remember them, we'll find our joy and our peace in life secure and unshakable. So let's tune into the words of Jesus. John 16, and we'll begin in verse 16. Jesus says, a little while, which just means in a little while, you will not see me. He's referring to his coming ascension when he would return to heaven to be with the Father after his death and resurrection. Then he says, and again a little while, so a little while after that, and you will see me because I go to the Father. In other words, after I ascend into heaven, you're gonna stay here on earth for a little while. And then you're gonna see me in heaven again where we'll be together with my Father. Verse 17 Then some of his disciples said among themselves, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I go to the Father. They said therefore, what is this that he says a little while? We do not know. That means we do not understand what he's saying. And it cracks me up because the disciples are are finally honest enough to blurt out and say to each other, what's with this guy? He's, He's talking, but we have no idea what he's talking about. And he's like, you know what I'm talking about. And we're like, no, we don't know what you're talking about. We do that a lot of the time too, don't we? You know, we, we ponder and we wander. We, we scratch our heads and we express verbally and on social media we, we act puzzled and, and we comment that we don't understand what the Lord is doing in our lives at this time. We tell everybody around us, put it on Facebook, 
sit there and think, what, what is going on right now? And like the disciples, we don't actually ask the one person who knows, the Lord. <laughs> we don't ask God. And I won't make you raise your hands for this, but, 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 but here's how I can make my point. How many of you have ever asked for prayer for something you actually haven't even prayed about yourself yet? I'm not going to make you do that because we've probably all done that. When it's prayer request time in a small group meeting or with family, is there anything I can pray about for you? Yeah, there is. There's this giant issue that's weighing on me, and, and we haven't even prayed about it yet. How much better, how much wiser would we be to simply ask the Lord directly rather than talking among ourselves while the Lord, who never leaves us or forsakes us, is right there with us? We could just ask him. When you're confused and struggling to understand something in your life or God's will for your life, ask yourself, what have I actually done to pursue an answer from God? I'm shocked in myself and in other believers how weak the answer to that question often is. This is huge. This is consuming me. I just don't understand what's going on. I need guidance. I need direction. What have you actually done to pursue hearing from God in this area? Have you prayed? How many days in a row have you prayed? Have you fasted? Have you been in the Word asking the Lord to speak to you through it? And if we're honest, we probably haven't fasted. We've probably prayed about it for two days. We've probably opened our Bible once and hoped it would magically land on the perfect verse. And when we didn't find it in a 30-second scan, we're like, well, I've tried, Lord. What else do you want me to do? I have sought you in your Word. I opened your Word in like three different places and closed my eyes and pointed and, and nothing. I've done my part, Lord. I, I, I'm out of ideas. I'm a huge fan of a, a, a church in Seoul, South Korea. I don't know if they still do this, but they used to do this. It, it was at one time the biggest church in the world, and they owned a retreat center on the mountainside in Seoul. And it had cabins, and they were very bare-boned. They had military-style bunks that you could sleep on, and they would serve you food, but it was only ever soup. And they had a free bus service that ran from downtown up to this prayer retreat center on the mountain. And if you called the church and you said, I need to speak to a pastor, there's something urgent going on in my life, they would not give you an appointment for counseling with anybody on their pastoral team unless you had accumulated three days of prayer on the Mountainside Retreat Center. In other words, like you got to get like a card stamped saying that you've been there praying for at least three days about this issue before we'll even talk to you about it. And the reason was because it's human nature in every culture for us Christians to rather talk to a person than to the Lord. Because the attention we get from a, a person is more tangible the empathy or sympathy we feel is, is, is more tangible. And even though they can't help us like the Lord can, it's so much easier to talk to a person about it. And so what they would find at this church is for most people, they would hear from the Lord before the end of even the first day of just pulling away and seeking the Lord. Now I'm sure there were some times that they met with some people, but literally 99% of the time, the person would never end up calling the church. Because either the issue wasn't serious enough that they were willing to pray about it, or they heard from the Lord as soon as they began seriously seeking them for themselves. So if you're in a place of seeking answers from the Lord, I want to encourage you just to honestly ask yourself, 
What have I actually done? What action steps have I taken? And how long have I been taking them to seek the Lord for myself? What have I actually done? So make a note of this. When we don't understand what the Lord is doing, our first step should be to ask the Lord. Ask the Lord. Not, oh man, i got to save this problem for small group because this is a good thing to share. Ask the Lord. Verse 19 Now Jesus knew, because Jesus always knows, that they desired to ask him. And he said to them, are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful. In just a few hours, Jesus will be arrested. In less than 24 hours, he'll be crucified, nailed to a cross, and he'll die there. And as that all unfolds, the disciples will be devastated. They'll be crushed. They'll be weeping and lamenting while, while the world that is ruled by Satan will be rejoicing over their seeming triumph over Jesus. Then Jesus says, and I have this underlined in my Bible, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Your sorrow will be turned into joy. Calling the world's rejoicing over Christ's death premature would be a significant understatement because what a difference three days would make. In three days, the disciples would go from thinking they had wasted the last three years of their life following a false prophet to realize that they had really been walking beside the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world for the past three years, God in the flesh. I can't imagine the level of joy that must have consumed the disciples when they saw Jesus face to face for the first time following his resurrection. And in the book of Acts, we're told that when the Holy Spirit came upon the followers of Jesus for the first time, it came with great power and joy. Indeed, their sorrow would be turned into joy. Verse 21, Jesus now gives an example and he says, A woman, when she's in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she's given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now, if you've ever witnessed the birth of a child, you know that it's a physically traumatic and painful event. And yet when the mother looks at her child, holds her child for the first time. She's overwhelmed with love and with wonder for the miracle that she's holding in her arms. And there's laughter and tears and joy all of a sudden. I've seen it myself six times. And the same baby, get this, the same baby that was responsible for all that pain and suffering is now the cause of incalculable joy. The same baby. And Jesus uses that imagery to parallel what he's about to go through. The trauma, the pain, the anguish of torture and death on a cross that will give birth to something new and wonderful, the church. Millions and millions of people who will enter into a relationship with Jesus and enjoy his love forever. It blows my mind that based on the statement from Jesus, when, when he was staring down torture and death, yes, his first and foremost goal was to be obedient to the Father. But based on what he says here as well, we have to conclude that Jesus was also motivated, inspired by, 
treasured the thought that when this was all done, something incredible would be born in the church. He was thinking of you and me. And that's incredible to me that as he's staring down this anguishing death on the cross, one of the things he's thinking about is you and me. And he's thinking, oh, but it's going to be worth it because they'll be in my family. That's incredible to me. They would think of us that way. And that's the value he places on us. And there's another level of amazing in what Jesus is saying here. He isn't saying that the thing that causes you pain will be replaced by something that will bring you joy. He's saying that the thing that causes you pain will be transformed into something that brings you joy. The cross, a source of great pain for three days for the disciples, would, upon the resurrection of Jesus, be transformed into a source of unspeakable joy. What the cross represented changed so much in those three days. During the three days that Jesus was in the grave, the cross was a symbol of defeat of everything that Jesus had said and done. But when he rose again, it became the source of our greatest joy and something that we put on the walls of our churches and wear around our necks. Jesus gives the example of childbirth, a source of incredible pain, transformed into one of life's greatest miracles. The world itself, the world we live in, before its time is over, Jesus will transform it for a thousand years into his literal kingdom on earth. And it'll bring us great joy as we rule and reign with him. Even our bodies, for many a source of great pain right now, will be transformed into eternal, sinless, resurrected, indestructible, perfect bodies. And I think we're going to enjoy that. All of that is the promise of Romans 8.28. It's on your outlines, but hopefully you know it, which says, and we know that all things, all things, not some things, not most things, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. It doesn't say all things will be replaced by something good. The promise is that God will do something good in every situation, no matter how dark or awful it may be. The promise is that God will transform it so that it produces something good. Even if it's giving you the ability to empathize with or to relate to other people who've gone through the same thing, so that you can share the love of Jesus with them more effectively, God will transform those negative and painful times into something that you can look at and say to others, yeah, that was dark, yeah, that was awful, but let me tell you what God did through that. Well, Jeff, what about people who are killed for loving Jesus? There's no more time to transform that. Well, if you could talk to them in heaven right now, and see the rewards they received from Jesus for being faithful all the way to death, I guarantee that they would tell you the Lord transformed their earthly death from shame and defeat into glory and triumph. And it's now something that they thank God for because he did something so good through it. In eternity, when we spend eternity in the presence of God in heaven, our earthly pains and hurts are going to fade from our memory, and all that will remain is the good that God pulled from those circumstances. What he transformed them into. 
as the pains of childbirth are overwhelmed and overpowered by the joy of the precious gift that the mother now holds in her arms. The Bible never says that everything happens for a reason. It doesn't say that. What the Bible says is, hey, if you love God and you belong to him, then God will do something good out of everything that happens in your life if you'll allow him to do that. That's the promise of Scripture. I've shared this before. What's so profound about that is there is meaning in the suffering of those who love Jesus. If you don't love Jesus, you don't have that promise. And your suffering is ultimately meaningless. It's just suffering because the earth is broken and people are broken. But Jesus says even when you encounter suffering that's the result of you being broken and other people being broken and the world being broken, he says even in that, I'll do something good through it. I'll do something good through it. Make a note of this. God loves to transform temporary pain into eternal gain. He loves to transform temporary pain into eternal gain. You know, I studied for a full year at seminary to learn how to rhyme words like that. Not not really. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. (laughs) Verse 22, Therefore, Jesus says, You now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice. And then underline this, And your joy no one will take from you. Your joy no one will take from you. Just think about that for a second. Would you like to have that kind of joy in your life? The kind of joy that you could say, honestly, I've got a level of joy in my life that no one can take from me. Nothing can take from me. You can take everything I have. You won't be able to take my joy. It's an incredible statement. And here again is this central Christian idea that our joy is supposed to be connected to what Jesus did for us on the cross. Our salvation. Jesus wants each of us to have a joy that can't be taken, it can't be stolen by any circumstance, and it can't be quenched by anything life throws at us. It's the kind of joy that through the centuries has enabled Christians to sing while they're chained in prison, to sing as they're being burned at the stake for loving Jesus, to rejoice as they're being martyred. It's a joy that comes from knowing that we belong to Jesus and nothing can change the end of our story. Make a note of this. When our salvation is our source of joy, our joy can never be taken from us. When our salvation is our source of joy, our joy can never be taken from us. Verse 23, Jesus says, And in that day, you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. After Jesus ascended back to heaven after his death and resurrection, and the Holy Spirit was given to every believer to live in everyone who loves Jesus, Jesus said, at that time, you're not going to ask me for anything. Instead, you'll just ask the Father directly in my name. We've talked about this extensively in our last several studies. The idea is that as we abide in Jesus, as we live our lives in relationship with Jesus, we'll get more and more in tune, more and more aligned with his heart for us. 
with the things he wants for our lives. And what we'll find is we'll find ourselves asking him for the very things that he wants for us. We'll find ourselves asking God to change us in the very ways that he wants to change us. And so his answer will be yes, yes, yes to our prayers. Verse 24, Jesus says, Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. I have this underlined in my Bible. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Boys, I I know that you're scared. I know you're discouraged. I know you're overwhelmed. I'm talking about how I'm going to be dying very, very shortly. But here's another reason for hope. None of you have even asked the Father for anything yet. You boys haven't even tapped into that at all. Ask and you'll receive. Jesus is saying there's another level of joy that you have yet to discover. It's the joy that comes from asking the Father for what you need to live the Christian life and then experiencing Him actually giving you what you've asked for. You know, it's a thrilling and exhilarating thing when there's a genuine interaction between you and your heavenly Father. When you ask Him for something and He actually answers that prayer, what that does for your faith is incredible and it fills you with joy. When you start actually asking the Lord for faith, for grace, for help to do His will in specific situations and you realize He's answering your prayers, that fires up your faith like nothing else. It reminds you that you're not alone and it fills you with joy. So Jesus tells his disciples, ask the Father for what you need to live the Christian life and he'll give it to you. And when he does, you'll find yourself full of his joy. And they would ask and they would receive. In Acts chapter 2, around 40 days later on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit would be given to them and to all believers. And they would receive the fullness of joy that Jesus is talking about here. So write this down. Sharing our needs with the Father and having Him answer our prayers will produce joy in our lives. Sharing our needs with the Father and having Him answer our prayers will produce joy in our lives. You know, the great news is that everybody who asks receives. Everybody who sincerely asks God the Father for what they believe he wants them to have in their lives, will receive. They may not receive exactly what they've asked for, but they will receive something. What is that something? It's the best. It's the best. Because sometimes we go before the Lord, and we're 100% confident that we're praying for what the Lord wants for us. I agree with you, Lord. They should marry me. Change their mind, Jesus. And the Lord looks at us and says, I know you are trying to be sincere, I know you, you think that's what I want to do, but I got something so much better for you. So I'm going to give you what's best for you. I'm not going to give you what you asked for, but because you asked, you're going to receive, and I'm going to give you what's better than what you asked for. Everybody who asks receives, and they receive the best from God. Verse 25, these things I've spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language but I will tell you plainly about the Father. And after Jesus ascended to heaven and they received the Holy Spirit, who's also one with Jesus, he would give them clear understanding about himself. In fact, the disciples would understand Jesus, his ministry, and his teachings with much greater clarity after Jesus returned to heaven than they ever did when he was actually with them. 
We know that because we have the Gospels in our Bible, which were all written after Jesus returned to heaven, after the Holy Spirit was given to believers. Verse 26, In that day you will ask in my name, and, do, and I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you. For, and then underline the rest of verse 27, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. This is incredible what Jesus is saying. He's going out of his way to tell his disciples and us that he doesn't want us to think that we're supposed to pray to Jesus him, and then he takes our requests to the Father because the Father doesn't really like us, but he likes Jesus, so he'll listen to Jesus. Jesus is going out of his way to tell us and his disciples, he's saying, no, when I go to the Father, it's not that you're going to pray to me and then I'm going to ask my dad for you. He says, no, the Father himself loves you. The Father himself loves you. So you can go straight to the Father. The basis of our relationship with God the Father is Jesus. Because we love Jesus and believe that he is Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, because we believe those things, the Father loves us. We don't need to go through a priest or an intermediary or some sort of middleman. We can have our own relationship with our Heavenly Father because of Jesus. He who receives Jesus is received by the Father. And so we can pray, Father, Jesus promised that we can ask for whatever we need. So here's what I'm asking for. We don't approach the Father with our credentials and say, Father, I'm here because you probably noticed. I've had a good week. I read my Bible every day this week. Prayed before I went to sleep. I even tithed. I uh, took out the trash without my wife asking. I didn't cuss out the window at that guy who cut me off, and I encouraged my kid with a Bible verse. So that's why I'm here. You should listen to me, Father. I, I'm kind of hitting it out the park right now. No, there's nothing we could do that would make us worthy of a relationship with the Father. We approach the Father because of our relationship with Jesus. Because we love Jesus, the Father loves us. If you're a parent, you get this. That if somebody loves your kid, it's no longer relevant whether you like that person or whether you click with that person or not. If they love your kid and they're kind to your kid, you like them. You're in. If they need help with something, you're going to help them because you love my kid. Man, I love you. That's how it is with my neighbors. There's two teenagers who live next door to us. They are so good to my kids. If one of them came to me and I found out he was having like trouble at school with a bully, I'd be like, you want me to do something about it? I'll go take care of it for you because you love my kids and you're good to my kids. That's the basis of our relationship with the Father. We love Jesus and so God's like, well, I love you. You love my son? I love you. We're on the same page. So make a note of this. Through Jesus, we have direct access to our Heavenly Father who loves us. We have direct access to our Heavenly Father who loves us. Now you can discern and come to your own conclusions on this, but I personally don't believe this means name-dropping Jesus every time we come to the Father for something, as though the name of Jesus is, is our abracadabra, right? I don't think it means, Father, please give me a promotion at work. Oh, I almost forgot. In the name of Jesus, 
now it's done. I, I believe that it's immediately obvious to the Father when we're praying in Jesus' name because our requests will be in line with the character of Jesus. And so when we pray in the name of Jesus, I don't think that means that every time you go to the Father, you have to say the magic words, in the name of Jesus. It means in line with his character. And the Father can immediately tell whether we're praying for something that bears a resemblance to his Son or not. Verse 28 Jesus says, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. His disciples said to him, See, now you're speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. Translation, now we get it, Jesus. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Translation, no, you don't. Verse 32 Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered, each to his own, literally each to his own place, his own home, and will leave me alone. Oh, we get it, Jesus. We understand now. Now we believe that you're God. We're with you. Jesus says, oh, really, you get it? Because, you know, in less than 24 hours, you're all going to desert me and go back to your own homes and start doing your old jobs again. Like in the next 24 hours, that's going to happen. And after Jesus was crucified in the days that followed, that's what they did. The shell-shocked disciples were scattered and they returned to their old jobs and homes when Jesus appears after rising from the dead to Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James, and John for the first time. He finds them back at their old jobs. They've gone back to fishing in Galilee. They're just fishing and saying, what the heck was up with the last three years? I don't know. Do you know? No, no. That's what he finds them doing. And then Jesus says this. This is worth underlining. I love this line from Jesus. You're all going to leave me. You're all going to desert me. In fact, you're not even going to stick around Jerusalem to see if I rise from the dead. Like you're going to go back home. You're going to assume this whole thing's over. Everyone's going to leave me. Everyone's going to desert me. I'm going to be left all alone. And then Jesus says this. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. I love that. You know, the reason we believe so strongly in speaking faith, in speaking out loud the truth of God's word, in, in making sure that the confession of our lips agrees with God is because Jesus did that. And this statement is a perfect example. Jesus says, you're all gonna leave me, I'm gonna be left all alone, but he doesn't end it there. He shows us how we should speak by adding an all-important truth to the end of his point, and yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. And may we learn to speak that same way in our darkest hours of trial and torment, in those moments in life when we feel abandoned and alone, may these words be found on our lips, and yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. So write this down. This is, this is a huge point that just sums us all up. Speaking faith doesn't mean denying reality. It means acknowledging the full reality. Speaking faith doesn't mean denying reality. It means acknowledging the full reality. So you'll meet some people and they'll say, you gotta speak faith. But you know deep down they're just denying reality. 
you've got cancer. No, I don't. In Jesus' name. It's like, well, well, well you do because here, here's the test that says. So you can't d- deny reality. It's denial even if you attach Jesus' name to it. What you need to do to speak faith is confess the full reality. Hey, I have cancer, but God's greater than cancer. He can heal cancer. It's nothing for him to do that. And I believe he's going to heal me. You speak the full truth. Speaking faith isn't about pretending that things aren't happening. It's not about pretending that the pain you're enduring isn't real or the difficulty that you're going through isn't actually happening. It's not about that. It's about saying, yeah, yeah, this is happening, but here's the full truth. God's greater. God's stronger. God is more powerful. God is able to do something here. That's what it really means to speak faith. Verse 33, these things I have spoken to you, and then underline this, that in me you may have peace. That in me you may have peace. That's the goal here. If Jesus is able to say, things are going to get bad, really bad, but then things are going to get really, really, really good. And if Jesus is able to say, I'm going to suffer and die, but then rise again in victory over death, and if Jesus is able to actually follow through on those predictions, then it means the disciples and you and I can trust him completely when he says to us, that we're going to have troubles, we're going to have difficulties, and sometimes we're even going to face an early death in this life, but it's going to end in victory for us. If Jesus is powerful enough to predict that about his own life and then have it happen, we have no reason to doubt him when he makes the same promise to you and I. That's the peace that Jesus is talking about. He's saying, guys, I I want you to understand. I want you to have peace. He knows they're going to leave and scatter them. So what's he doing talking about peace? He's saying, because when this is all over, you're going to remember that I told you this before I even did it. You're going to remember I told you I was going to be killed. And I told you I was going to rise from the dead. And I told you I was going to return to my Father in heaven. And you're going to remember and realize that nothing that happened to me was strong enough to change that. So when I tell you, disciples, that I've got you, I've got you, and no one's going to be able to take you from me, you can take it to the bank because I went first and I've proven that I can back up the promises that I make to you. That's the peace that Jesus wants them to have. That's the peace that he's talking about. So write this down. The Christian's peace comes from knowing that Jesus has secured the outcome of his or her life. The Christian's peace, your peace, my peace, isn't supposed to come from everything in our life being ordered and finally being in its right place because it's never going to be the case. And if it is, enjoy it, but it's a passing moment. Peace in the life of a Christian is supposed to come from knowing Jesus has secured the outcome of my life. I've got to live out a bunch of chapters, but this final chapter, the one that goes on forever, that's written in stone. And it does not matter what happens to me in those chapters leading up to the final chapter. The final chapter's written, and there's nothing in the world that can change it because that final chapter was written by Jesus. 
And then Jesus delivers what I think is one of the greatest mic drop verses in all the Bible. He says, in the world you will have trouble. You will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. He's just saying, watch and see what happens. Just watch and see. You know, Jesus and his word make it very clear that it's normal for Christians to experience persecutions and difficulties in life. And to be clear, he's talking about difficulties that are the direct result of you being a Christian. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about like, you know, you're trying to get home and traffic is worse than normal. And so you go, Lord said we'd have trials. But he's overcome the world. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about difficulties specifically related to being a Christian that are the result of you being a Christian. We talked about it very plainly in our last study. You should check that out if you missed it. In 2 Timothy 3.12, the Apostle Paul says this. It's on your outlines. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. How many of you know that verse doesn't look good on a coffee cup and I've never seen it on any Christian t-shirt or bumper sticker before? (laughs) That's not one of the promises that we stick on the bathroom mirror, right? Jesus says that our hope is not persecution and tribulation being removed from our lives. Our hope is that he's greater and stronger and more powerful than those tribulations. That's why he says, be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. John the Apostle would go on to say it like this in 1 John 4, 4. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Again, it doesn't mean we sail through life and tribulations like they're no problem. Millions of Christians have been killed for loving Jesus across the centuries. It just means that this life is not all there is. This life isn't the end, and this life isn't all we should be evaluating. Jesus says when you see the total picture in eternity, It'll be obvious how I gave you victory over all those tribulations. When you're in heaven, enjoying my presence, enjoying eternity, it'll be clear to you that you overcame those through me. The Apostle Paul wrote about this in Romans 8. He said, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now you got to get this. Being more than conquerors cannot be referring to escaping troubles on earth. Because Paul just referenced believers being killed. Right? We're being killed like sheep being led to the slaughter, yet we're more than conquerors. He can't be talking about the alleviation of earthly pain. So then how are we more than conquerors? I love this. For I am persuaded, Paul goes on to say. Here's why we're more than conquerors. I'm persuaded. I've become convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're more than conquerors through Jesus because no matter what the world and Satan does to us, even if the world kills us, nobody has the power or the ability to separate us from the love of God, which is ours in Christ Jesus. Nobody can separate us from Jesus, no matter what they do to us. 
That's what it means to be more than conquerors. That's what it means when Jesus says, I've overcome the world. Whatever you're going through, whatever you will go through in this life, it cannot steal the one thing that is most valuable and the one thing that should be your source of joy and peace. You belong to Jesus. You belong to Jesus. Nothing life throws at you is stronger than God's love for you. Commit these words of Jesus to memory so that you can pray them out loud on a regular basis. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Now Jesus said that the hour, the time, the season of his life when things look darkest and most sorrowful would actually result in incredible joy for himself and those who loved him. This is a concept that we've got to come to terms with if we're going to be serious followers of Jesus. Here's what I mean by that. If we're really going to follow Jesus and live for eternity, we need to understand that part of living for Jesus means we will go through events and circumstances and seasons where things look dark and sorrowful, but if we'll trust God, he'll transform those things into something good that will result in eternal blessings. That's the way it is. We gotta understand that. And part of growing up in the Christian faith is getting to the place where you start saying, but I know God's doing something good in the middle of the difficult time. Doesn't mean as much when you say it at the end. Part of becoming mature in the faith is getting to the place where you start saying, but I know God's working good through all of this before you know what the something good is. Part of becoming mature in the faith is learning how to thank God for the miracles that haven't arrived yet for the tragedies that haven't yet been transformed into something good. Part of becoming mature in the faith is saying I've got a reason to praise now because I know where this is going. I've seen this story before. God is doing something good. I've seen it too many times to doubt in the middle of it now. And so I'm just ready to start thanking God now because I know where this is going. And whoever you are, whatever your situation is, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, here's what I can tell you with 100% confidence. One way or the other, in the end, your sorrow will be turned into joy. It's a law of the kingdom. Your sorrow will be turned into joy. The ending of your story and mine is guaranteed to be joy because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And Jesus says, I'm inviting you to start living in that joy now start living in it now because you know the outcome because you know the ending i'm inviting you to start celebrating now because you know that nothing can separate you from my love for you and because you know that at the end of the story you will be there with me i'm inviting you to rejoice now because you know i've overcome the world and that i'm in you i'm inviting you to start walking around victorious in life now and the better we get at doing that the more mature in the faith we're becoming because we're actually starting to notice the pattern of God's faithfulness in our lives how long is it going to take for you and I to reach the point where we say you know 
That's uh, 3,721 times in a row now that God has been faithful. No instances where He hasn't. I'm beginning to think there may be a pattern here. How long is it going to be? How old are you going to be? How old am I going to be? Before we finally say, I figured it out. God's faithful. He's faithful. Always, without fail. And so I'm just going to start thanking him for the fact that he's faithful. I'm not going to act anymore like when things are difficult in my life, God's faithfulness has gone down because I know the time's coming when I'm going to look back and feel bad for even doubting the fact that he was faithful. So I'm just going to start thanking God now. Don't wait. Don't wait. And if you find yourself lacking something you need in order to live the Christian life effectively, the answer isn't in trying harder. The answer is, as always, in drawing closer to the Lord. And Jesus told us to ask the Father for what we need. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Ask the Lord for what you need. If you need faith, ask him for faith. If you need peace, ask him for peace. If you need joy again, ask him for joy. Ask him for it. You know he wants you to have it. Ask him for it and he'll give it to you. With that, let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you so much that your desire for us is that we go through this life full of your peace and full of your joy. It's your desire that we have a peace and a joy that can't be stolen by any circumstance or even by death. Thank you that you offer us what nothing else in the world does. Real joy and real peace. And Jesus, we want to acknowledge that you are faithful always and without fail. We believe that as we put our lives in your hands, as we even come to you with the things in our lives that are are just broken, Father, we believe that you can do something good in every single one of our broken situations. And we know that because of the something good that you've already done in every single one of us that knows you. You came into a broken life and you made a home inside of us. In our broken, messed up condition, you came in and made yourself a home. And if you can do that, and if you're that good, there is no question that you can and will continue to be good in the broken situations we encounter in life. Thank you for your kindness to us, Lord. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your joy and thank you for your peace. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. 
It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.